0: Keep your Bibles open there to 1 Corinthians. We are going to uh, jump into that in just a moment. Uh, so often, churches, different churches, different denominations, different types of churches will kind of fall into one or two uh, patterns of focus, and, and many churches will focus on uh, not a ton around here, but there are some churches, and sometimes we're skeptical of them, and, and oftentimes rightly so, but sometimes churches will focus on kind of the kingdom of Jesus, meaning Jesus coming in uh, power and in humility and feeding the poor, right? feeding the hungry, healing the sick, and setting the captive free, and, and churches will focus on that sort of ministry, that we, we continue that work, and we do that work in our communities, and that's kind of our focus. And then on the other side of that, many, church, many other churches will just sort of focus on the redemption of Jesus at the cross, and what he's done to forgive sinners, right, of our sins, and to get us into heaven. And, and oftentimes, the people on this side, that are focused on sort of the kingdom work and, and the the social impact of Jesus will sort of look at the cross as a tragedy, right? Because Jesus is only 33 or so years old. Like, what a tragedy that he died so young. What a tragedy that his impact didn't extend further. Uh, why, like, he seemed to have power, and yet he died in weakness. And so sometimes they don't know quite what to do with the cross. And then the other side of that, the folks who are overly focused on the, the cross and what Jesus has done to forgive and to redeem sinners... Um, they, they sort of get to a place where they would kind of be okay with if Jesus had only been born of a virgin and then died on a cross. right And, and though they might not say that in reality, they, they would kind of be okay if if he, had he hadn 't done anything else, save maybe live a perfect life, right? And so if, if that 's true, then what about the rest of the gospels, like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John sort of wasted their time with all that in between didn 't they? Like they spilled a lot of ink with what Jesus was doing with his life. Like while he lived, what does that have to do? And then on the other side of it, if you're just focused on sort of that kingdom aspect, then, then why in the world do the, the rest of the New Testament writers and, and all the gospel, like why do they, they talk so much about the cross? Why does that become such an emphasis? And, and so our hope in this sermon series the kingdom come and our hope particularly in today's sermon is to is to help us see how it doesn't it was never meant to be separated and it's not gotta, it's not supposed to be one or the other Right, so we're talking about kingdom come. Uh, we're talking about um, kind of the big idea of this series is understanding our present, like what's going on today. What are we called to do with our life while we wait on Christ to come? Like understanding our present in light of God's future. So knowing where this is headed, knowing what God is going to do, and how this project or this deal that He's what He's up to, how it ends, knowing that matters for how we live today. And so. Um, looking at the cross and the resurrection today, meaning what does that have to do with the kingdom come? So what we've said is that the Bible is going to end in a, in a very similar place in a culmination of where it began, God with his people ruling the earth, right? And we know that something went wrong in Genesis 3, and things got fractured, and everything went off the rails, and the rest of that is God working to redeem that, that uh what has gone wrong and he's working to restore what he made in Genesis 1 and 2 and we will see that happen and we'll look at that in detail next week in Revelation 21 where God's dwelling place will once again be with man forever and, and that's sort of the bookends of the big idea of the story of Scripture and so today we're going to zoom in on okay what does the cross and the resurrection have to do with that in other words. If that's where where God is going, is is to restore us back into his presence with him forever, can he get us there without the cross? And can he get us there without the resurrection? And for most of us, it's probably an easy answer of no, but why? What impact do they have on the kingdom Coming and God's ultimate plan for salvation. So, uh, listen, first of all, I need a couple caveats. I do not plan to be able to unpack the fullness of the cross or the resurrection, either one, let alone both of them in one sermon. All right? And so I'm not going to try today. That's not really the point. The point is to really look at both of them from a a 30,000 foot view of God's bigger scheme and and, and what God is doing in the overarching story of the scripture in in redemption and and really the kingdom coming and look at the implications of each of them. Uh, to that end. And so we will not be getting into every detail of the cross and, and the implication of those doctrines. Hopefully that's a part of every other sermon we preach, right? Like we don't preach anything that hopefully if, if I preach a sermon here and it all could have been true without the cross or the resurrection, you need to find another church, right? If we're, if we're preaching self-help stuff that, that, that Jesus being crucified on the cross and resurrected out of the grave, uh, doesn't matter to, then you need, you need to find a new church, right? Because that's what our hope is based on. So that's a part of all that we do. But today, we're going to sort of look at them from the aspect of this, this, this series, all right? And so, um, and then secondly, I, with this passage, it's a very um, theologically dense and hugely uh, just packed and pregnant with implications, and I won't pretend to be able to walk through this in great detail either. I won't do this passage justice today. We're going to be doing a similar thing and looking at it, uh, letting it speak to the the topic of kingdom come and, and the cross and, and resurrection. Uh, we so just just know that it'll be a, a little bit. Uh, I, I won't. It's it's hard for me not to, but it, it's going to feel like I don't do the service. But in order to get us out of here, you know, before two o'clock, like I gotta. I've got to kind of treat it a little bit differently. But we will be walking through this passage at length next year. Uh, starting in January, we're going to dive into the whole book of 1 Corinthians and spend a good bit of time in that. And so it'll be a fun series. And so we'll walk through that at length at that time. So the question is, could the kingdom come without the cross? Could the kingdom come without the resurrection? And if not, why not? So... Let's jump into the text, and Paul's going to begin to answer that for us quite quickly. So, we started reading in verse 12, but uh, sort of the famous passage of 1 Corinthians 15. If you look at uh, verse 3, Paul is obviously this is toward the end of a book where he's gone through a whole lot of practical implications. He's already been teaching this church a whole lot and correcting a whole lot in this church, but he's going to kind of go into something deeper. And he, before he does, he's going to say, Hey, verse 3 of, of chapter 15, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. This is Paul saying, Hey, the only thing that matters, the, mo- the main thing I gave to you of first importance, because that's what changed my life, and this is that. That Christ died for our sins in, cor- in accordance with the Scripture. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scripture. So Paul says, hey... Just so, like this is it. This is the most important thing. The good news of what Jesus has done on the cross. He was buried in the grave and he was raised on the third day. And that all of that is the is culmination of the scriptures. It's, it was what God had been working toward all throughout the Old Testament that everybody loves so much in Paul's day. He said, it's all a part of that. It's in accordance with the scripture. It's not an isolated event, it's not a new uh, movement or new religion. It is the culmination of what the God of Israel has been doing. In their history. And so Paul says, listen, that is first and foremost. Let's skip down to verse 12. There's some confusion. There's some debate in the Corinthian church. Uh, people saying that um, there will not be a resurrection of the dead. And that it really doesn't matter. Like they're still living their Christian life. They're still following Christ and doing church. But they're saying, no, no, no. There, there won't actually. There's not going to be a physical resurrection. And, and this, this is... Um, Informed by what is still around today in some of an idea of Gnosticism, meaning the material world is, is, is sort of bad, right? And, and what God really cares about is the spiritual inner uh, part of our life, and that really eternity is going to be a spiritual existence and not a physical existence, and so we're not really worried about the physical resurrection of the dead. And Paul is going to um, get quite emphatic talking about why that, in fact, is false, And there's a lot at stake. There's a lot at stake when it comes to the resurrection. So Paul says this, Now if Christ is proclaimed, verse 12, as raised from the dead, how could some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? Like that's the gospel. If Christ is resurrected, how can you say there won't be one? uh, For the rest of us, verse 13, But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And then those who have fallen asleep and in Christ have perished. And there's no hope for that. Like if, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are. Of all people, most to be pitied. So Paul is very clear that that this is not a take it or leave it issue. This is the issue. And if we leave it, we have left what we know of Christianity. So the resurrection is so important to Christianity that if it is not true, if it did not happen, then we have no faith to stand on and we should just all go home. Right? Right? And in fact, we're going to have an embarrassing conversation with our friends that we've spent so much of our life dedicated to church and we realize that it no longer matters. Like, it is that important, Paul says, that it like our not only is my job as the preacher in vain, but all your faith is in vain if the resurrection has not happened. And so um, a lot of people are familiar with that idea that if the resurrection is not true, then we lose Christianity um, and, and that's, that's true, and, and a lot of people think about it from sort of an apologetic standpoint, that if the resurrection isn't true, then the rest of the, 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 what we believe about the Bible cannot be true, and, and that's true, but I would say that Paul is saying more than that. It's not just a, I believe in Christ you know, because of the resurrection, that, that's true, but I, I think what he's saying is if the resurrection isn't true, then we not only lose Christianity from an apologetic standpoint, we lose the very nature of, Of our faith. We lose the very nature of what God is doing throughout history and in our life and what we're looking ahead to. So last week, Jesus said, The kingdom is here. Right? He said, The kingdom is here. He started, we looked at Matthew 4, uh, where, where Jesus began to preach that. He says, Okay, the scriptures are beginning to be fulfilled. I am the Messiah, the one who has been waited for. The kingdom is at hand. Repent. God is on the move. Like, this thing has arrived. The thing that everybody's waited for uh, throughout all of Israel's history. He is here. And before we looked at, the kingdom is here. And before, we look, before that, we looked at Exodus and, and God's plan to make a people for himself. That his work in the Exodus that I briefly mentioned earlier in the communion intro. Like, that the whole thing that he was doing there. the great story of rescuing them out of Egypt. When he gets them out of Egypt and across the Red Sea and does all of that work. right? He doesn't make them perform first. Right? He rescues them and then he gets them in the wilderness and he's going to meet with them. And he says, hey, I have brought you out of Egypt to make you my people. You're going to be mine and I'm going to be your God. And, and we're going to do this amazing thing together where all the world is going to see that life is found in me. I'm going to make you a kingdom, a priest, meaning that you will be the ones that the world looks to to see where life can be found in Christ in God. Like, and God. And so he's doing that. And then he gives them the law. So he rescues them, he redeems them, he saves them, and then he gives them the law. Right? You can't get that order reversed. You can't say, oh, he gave them the law, and that's how they can be saved. If they can punch off these ten things, then they'll, they'll be all right. They'll be able to go spend eternity with heaven. No, no, no. He, he saves them, rescues them, and then gives them the law. As Okay, this is how Like I've made you. I've established him. God's established himself as king, right, as authoritative. Like he just took down the most powerful man in the known world in Pharaoh. He just took him down. He has established his authority. He says, "I am here in authority. All authority is mine. You belong to me now, and this is how life works in my kingdom." And that's why he gives them the law. Then we looked at last week, uh, and Jesus said, "All right, and all throughout the scripture, then we're 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 leaning forward, looking forward to the day when the true Messiah is going to come and fully establish the kingdom." And Jesus says, "That's me. I'm here." And we looked at the way that He's going to establish a people for Himself that will preserve it. One day he's going to come back and fully put this thing to rights, right? And we're going to continue to look at that as we move through the series. But until then, he says, this world is broken. It's going bad. And much like a piece of meat that you don't want to go bad, you're going to, in that day, they put salt down in it, right? They would rub salt down into it so that it wouldn't rot, so that it wouldn't go bad. And he said, this world is broken because it's in need of me. And until we can fully put this thing right, until all people have a chance to repent, You are going to be the salt and the light of the world, and you go into the hard places. You go into the places that are broken and messed up, and you, as my people, Christians, will become the salt of the world that keep it from falling completely apart until he comes back and fully consummates his kingdom. So... That's where we're moving toward. And and so what I would say is this, as we get into the the implications of the cross and the resurrection, that you need to know that Jesus wasn't kidding. He wasn't wrong. He wasn't, when he said the kingdom of God is at hand, he wasn't like mistaken with that. That Jesus' life, the life of Christ, launches the kingdom. The life of Christ launches the kingdom, meaning he's coming and he brings it to bear on the world and he begins to say, hey, you've seen the world do it one way. I think we got a slide for that. You've seen the world do it one way. We're going to do it another way. The way of the world is to do things in power and to put people under authority and to to crush them until they obey. The way that the kingdom is coming is by humility and service and a totally upside-down sort of life. Jesus himself said, "I've, I've come not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. So Jesus' life launches the kingdom of God, and he says, this is what it's going to look like. The people that follow me, the people that are part of my kingdom, will live like this, and the kingdom will go forward, and it will be good for the world. It will preserve the world. It will bring light into the world. So the kingdom is present as Jesus shows up, but... It can be present in the form of a movement and yet, and not yet established, and so, so what we 're going to see is he 's going to do at the cross, but it, I want you to picture with me that yes, the, the kingdom can be present in this movement, and this is what the people are going to live this is the people that live this out, this is the way that we live this out, but it 's not yet established, and i can 't help but think of William Wallace. Right. And, and I'm, and I'm going to just admit to you that I'm way more informed by the movie Braveheart than I am actual history studies. So just don't judge me on that and just know that. But in, in that movie, like we see that the Scottish people are under the reign of an evil king of England. Right. And he is mistreating his people. And one guy says, that's enough. That's enough. We don't stand for it anymore. And he rallies this army and this force of people. And there's this incredible scene right where he's, he's rallying the people. And he's calling them to fight in a battle that they have no chance to win. right? But he's rallying the troops. And it's this amazing scene. And everybody's cheering. And he's, you could take our lives, but you'll never take. I can't have a Scottish accent. But you know the scene, right? It's really good. You'll never take our freedom, right? And, and he rallies all these people here. And the movement is there. That is beginning to build. But it's not yet established. Why? Because... Edward the Longshanks is still in power, right? The enemy has not yet been taken down. And one of my favorite scenes from that movie is when they're all gathered up there, and the other the the British the, the English armies on the other side, and they're standing there and they're waiting. They said, "Hey, if you just surrender, this whole thing could be put away." And the the noble the you know religious the, the leaders of uh, you know the Scottish they're like, "Okay, we really need to just work this deal out. We need to put this whole thing to rest. We're not going to win this battle. This is a bad deal." And and Wallace rides away, and and somebody says, where are you going? He says, to pick a fight. I want to pick a fight. And what does he do? He goes right up and sets off the enemy and picks a fight, a battle that only he knows he has a plan to win. And the way that Jesus Christ approaches the world, he comes in humility. He's born in a freaking manger. That doesn't make sense, right? He lives in Nazareth. Nothing good can come out of Nazareth, right? But he begins to build this momentum. He begins to call people to himself. He begins to gather a following. Right, And then he's headed to Jerusalem after years of ministry and after this huge following. And he's headed to Jerusalem. And the people there are wanting to kill him. Right, And it doesn't make any sense that he's headed there. And everybody's wondering, okay, are you going to establish the kingdom now? You might need some weapons. You might need a different plan. I don't know how this is going to go. That You're going to overthrow Rome. And Jesus allows himself to be arrested, allows himself to be taken before the courts. And in that moment, I think Jesus, it doesn't make sense to his followers, right? But he says, I'm going to pick a fight. I want to pick a fight because the real enemy, the real reason that the kingdom can't come to fully bear is there is an enemy who stands in opposition to what God is doing and that enemy is Satan and death. Right? That even though Jesus has come and brought a new way of living, the world is still headed toward eternity without God. Like the world is still headed in disarray and Jesus says I've got to take out the actual enemy. This is not about a temporal overthrowing of Rome and establishing Israel back to its material kingdom. No, no. He says, I'm coming for the one that actually has rule and reign over this world. And I'm going to take him out. And Jesus goes to the cross for that reason. For that reason. He turns everything around in that way. Like we look at verse 21. For as by a man came death... Right, talking about Adam, like when Adam entered into sin that became a part of our nature, the man has come or by a man also has come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam, all die f- also in Christ. All will be made alive. Why? Because of the work that he has done on the cross. Colossians uh, 2, I believe it's 14. Just I'll have it up in just a second. But it says this, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demand. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Jesus' work on the cross was his, like, again, one of my hopes for you in this series is you see the thread of kingdom all throughout Scripture. And one of the famous stories that we all know is is David and Goliath, right? And we know the story of, of... of, of God's people standing there trying to enter in the promised land, trying to uh, claim the promise, the goodness that God had put before them, but their enemy is strong, enemy is big, and they are scared. There's no way that they can conquer it on their own. No, never mind the fact that God has done plenty of work to show them that he wants to, but, the, the, but they forget, right? Much like we do, they forget that, that God is not intimidated by the powers of this world, but they stand there shaking in fear, and no one will challenge the great Goliath. No one will challenge him. That the champion of the Philistines have sent Goliath out and said, okay, y'all fight one man, and if he wins, we'll all be your prisoners. Right? But if not, then, then you lose, and, and the world's reversed. And, and everybody's shaking. Everybody's scared. And David rides up. Well, no, he's not a soldier. He doesn't have experience. But you know what he has? He has belief in a God who has rescued him from bears and from lions, and he's seen him do amazing things. He has faith in God. And he walks up and he goes, listen, we're God's people, right? This is my paraphrase. God will take care of this. I'll fight him, doesn't matter who I am, matters who God is. And so David walks up, right, with, with boldness, not from his own confidence, but in his confidence in who his God is, and he walks up and slays that joker, lays him out with one stone, Done deal. Chops his head off. Everybody celebrates. David is the champion of Israel that conquers the enemy that no one had the, the nerve or the ability to step forward. And we all talk about that story in the wrong way. We talk about as, as the Goliath and the giants in our own life and how God wants to help us conquer. No, no, no. That's a foreshadowing of what Christ is going to do in Jesus. Like in, in the moment when he goes to the cross, he's taking on our enemy. He is saying, listen, my children, I know. I know that none of you can overcome death. I know that all of you are entangled in this. And I know that you're all scared. And I know that you're all hopeless. I got you. I got you. I'll fight this battle. And he pushes us to the side. And he himself steps on to the cross where only we belong. His followers don't know what he's doing or why this life that had been so promising would end in such a tragic way. Again, Jesus knows what he's doing. He's picking a fight. It's through the cross that he will defeat the enemy of the kingdom. So Jesus, his life, what he does, you know, from you know the the majority of the gospel accounts, like what he does in his life, like that launches the kingdom into existence. But his death is what establish like that's what defeats the enemy. Of the kingdom so Jesus like without the cross the kingdom doesn't have the traction it doesn't have the power and then as we go even even further forward like we want to look at the resurrection because it, it, the cross without the resurrection like he could have defeated the enemy in a sense he might he might have you know taken out the enemy on his way to death but the fact that Jesus came back to life is what empowers the kingdom to actually go forward so the death of Jesus defeats the enemy and the resurrection of Jesus is what establishes and empowers the kingdom to go forward. And here's where the the bulk of what Paul's emphasis here in a, and what can be a very confusing text. And we'll talk about some more of the implications next week as we get into this, but here's what Paul's going to talk about is, is with the resurrection is what empowers the kingdom to come in the power and in the influence and in the way that God has a plan. So just Jesus dying on the cross and then Comes back to life, and that's incredible, right? And the people that are there, that's an incredible moment. And Paul said earlier in this text that he appeared to, you know, like more than 500 people, and there's this, like, that's all good, but God, he wasn't finished with that. In fact, Jesus says, I gotta go because I gotta send the helper. This is all just getting started, right? And when Jesus ascends into heaven, That is what Daniel was talking about when he saw the Son of Man coming on the clouds. So often we think about that as Jesus coming back. No, no. That's talking about Jesus leaving earth. He's ascending on the clouds. From earth, there's there's a hymn I love. uh, Look ye saints, the sight is glorious. See the man of sorrows now. From the fight return victorious here to claim the victor's crown. So Jesus has returned victorious. He drank in the fullness of death and its power on the cross. He lay there in the grave, and then he burst forth, right, with all power, with all freedom, with all authority, and he is ascending into heaven. And then in that moment, he is, like David, returning as God's people's champion, the one who established the victory, who conquered the enemy. He is in that moment... Uh, arriving back into heaven, the champion who won his battle, who accomplished his purpose, fought his fight, and won. And, in the, and at the same time, he's returning as the conquering David and also as the new Adam, ready to rule and reign as God had meant for it to be. And that's the, the language there Paul is talking about. Um, that by one man came death, right? By another man's going to come the resurrection of the dead. For in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive and that's what he's talking about is Christ is the is the new Adam, the last Adam, and he as he ascends into heaven, he is both the conqueror of the enemy and the ruler that Adam was supposed to be setting in place a new kingdom. And that's what Paul's going to talk about is he's going to deliver that kingdom fully consummated one day. But the resurrection is what empowers it. To actually have traction that has lasted now for thousands of years. Without the resurrection, this this is nothing more than a movement that would have fizzled out. You think about the disciples, right? You think about these guys, like, yes, they had spent time with Jesus and they they had seen him do great things and they'd even done some great things, but we see right up until the moment of Jesus' death, they still don't get it, right? We see them asking questions that, that are, make it really clear, they don't understand the fullness of what he's doing here, right? As they're on their way into the, the, the Jerusalem, one of them asks, they're like, hey man, when we get there, can I have your seat on your right and my brother's seat on your left? And, and you know Because they think he's taking a throne. Right? Can I be your number one and your number two? And, and Jesus says, you have no idea what you're asking. There'll be a place on my right and on my left. I don't think you want either one. He's just, of course, talking about the cross. Mark, I believe it's in I don't, or I don't know. I think, I think I put it in Matthew 27. Several of the Gospels say it, but as Jesus is, like, see, everybody's thinking the Messiah is going to come and, and be raised into a throne, and he'll establish his kingdom. And indeed, Jesus says, I must be lifted up, and when I'm lifted up, I'll draw all men unto myself. And Jesus was lifted up, but not onto a throne, instead onto a cross. And Matthew 27 says that over his head, they put the charge against him. They put a sign, this is, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And they, of course, put their... their Put that there to mock him. And little did they know that this kingdom would would not only outlast their piddly deal of Rome, but would still be going strong thousands of years later. Jesus comes not in the same sort of power that the world is used to. He doesn't come and meet them with with tanks and, and brute force. Instead, he comes with a different sort of power one that is disarming to the rulers and authorities of the spiritual world one that actually gains new life and freedom for his people but back to his disciples you remember that even up to the point of Jesus like death they don't get it even at, like after Jesus is is uh arrested peter right the guy whom we all love and like we we You know, we see he becomes a father, like the the New Testament church, like it's an incredible thing. But in that moment, like after Jesus is arrested, Jesus or Peter is a scared little boy who denies that he even knows Jesus to a teenage girl. All the other disciples run away. They're all scared. None of them are living in, in this power that Jesus has promised. Why? Because they haven't experienced the resurrection yet. Because you know what happens on the other side of that? All but one die from martyrdom. And that wasn't for lack of trying. They just couldn't kill John all but one, die for martyrdom, meaning they gave their life for Christ. What transforms cowards who run away when Jesus is arrested into guys who give their life to the end? The resurrection. It's the resurrection. Encountering the resurrected Jesus is what gave them new life and empowered the kingdom to go forward. And that's what I want to look at just as we close here. Uh, from this very complicated passage um, here from Paul, but I want to look at it quickly. Um, pick up in verse 20. But in fact, if... But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead and he's raised as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, the word first fruits is an agricultural term that they would use uh, to to define what would be essentially a sample of a crop that would indicate the nature of the quality of the rest of the crop, right? So early in the season, the first one to come full, like they would look at that and they go, okay, this is what the rest of the crop is going to look like. Jesus comes and not only does he come back to life, but he is there as the first fruits of what is going to come with all of us, right? For as by a man came death, we read this earlier, by man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, verse 22, so also in Christ all be made alive, but each in its own order. Christ is the first fruits, and then at his coming those who belong to Christ. And then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his Feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So what he, here's what he's saying: is Christ, first fruits. He was resurrected, new body. Like be like, he does amazing things. We'll talk a little bit more about that next week. But but his resurrection is the first fruits of all who are to come in his footsteps, all who are to follow him. And he says, when that happens, like there'll be a day whenever everybody's going to experience that same sort of powerful resurrection. And that will be at the end when he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father after destroying every rule and every authority. So what happens after Jesus is res- resurrected, he spends some time with his disciples, he teaches them a little bit more, he tells them what's to come, and then he ascends into heaven. And the Bible says that he takes his place seated at the right hand of the Father. That is the place of authority to rule and to reign until all of his enemies are made his footstool. And what uh, Matthew twenty four fourteen says, that once the gospel has been preached to all the nations... And Satan's rule and influence will be have overthrown. Everyone will have had a chance to repent from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and then the end will come. Jesus is after the whole world. And, and once that has been accomplished, the end will come, And all who are in Christ will be transformed in the same way. And again, we'll look at more of the implications of that next week. But here's the big idea for now. That Jesus, the kingdom, is coming. He tells us to pray that. That's kind of the heart of this whole series. Jesus told us to pray that the kingdom would come, and his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. What does that mean? It means the kingdom is going to continue to advance, going to continue to grow until all of his enemies have been made his footstool. And then he'll present the kingdom fully prepared to the Father, And then the last enemy to be destroyed is death. What he means by that is after he's done all the rest of his work, he's going to come back. All his people will be brought back to life. It's going to be an amazing day. It's going to be an amazing moment. And in that moment, death will be no more. Death will be no more. And it will be fully and completely and totally destroyed. But here's what I'm going to look at with the the implications of the resurrection. I want you to flip back to a passage we didn't read, but it goes later in the... the, um, In the chapter 15 there, go to verse 42. And I want to look at the nature of, we talk about in baptism, we talk about being united with Christ in his death, right? United with Christ in his burial, and then raised to walk in newness of life, that we're united with Christ in his resurrection as well. And and the Bible talks about the same spirit who's raised Jesus from the dead lives in us. Well, what is he talking about in that? How do we reconcile, like, with the already, with with the not yet? Like, what we experience now in Jesus and being united in his resurrection, having new life, Uh, The Bible talks a lot about old nature versus new nature. It talks a lot about, um, you know, the struggle between the two. What do we do with that? How do we make sense of that as we wait on the ultimate consummation of the kingdom? And a lot of people will get confused and caught up. In fact, it's what Paul's addressing here. Everybody's like, "Well, if there's going to be a resurrection, then what does that look like? What kind of body am I going to have? Am i going to, have, I going to know my family member, am I going to, you know, will my dog be there?" We get all these same sorts of interesting questions, right? And they're not wrong to be curious about. But Paul says you're missing the point. Like, you're worried about the things that, that are really pretty secondary. What you need to understand is that this is the culmination of the, the whole thread of the Bible, of what God is doing in his, his work, the kingdom coming. Like, it's really not about our bodies so much and, and the transformation that's going to happen there. It's about what's already happened inside of us, and it's going to be the consummation of that. And so what, do you, what he's going to unpack here in some practical language that's sort of confusing, we'll do our best to understand it here in just a, a minute and And then we'll we'll be done. So verse 42 says, so it is. He's been talking about how there's a different form. And he actually talks about a seed. Now you have a seed and you plant it in as a kernel and it dies and it comes back in a different form. And he's talking about how that's going to, it's similar to what we're going to experience. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown perishable is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown in a natural body. It is raised in a spiritual body. Heaven, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. What in the world is he talking about? Well, he's going all the way back to Genesis, and he's, he's reminding us that he formed Adam out of the dust, and then he breathed life into him, right? He formed his physical being out of dust, and then he breathed life in him that became the animating, the driving force behind his actual being, right? His life, like, his, like all of those things that we struggle to describe to our kids, when, you know, like when the body's still there in the casket, but, you know, so-and-so is not there anymore, that, that tension that we try to describe. What Paul's saying here is, remember how we were created. right? He made us from the dust, and then he breathed life into us. And as we all are influenced by the man of the dust, right by Adam, we are all perishable. We are all in sin. We are all on our way to death. That implication was absolute and complete to everyone that was born after. And he said the same thing is going to be true of those who were born of the man of heaven. Jesus is, is, is redoing that curse. And again, this is all pointing back to, I'd love to unpack it fully, but if you read Ezekiel 37, there's this incredible story. God taking the prophet Ezekiel out and seeing this valley of dry bones and saying, hey, can they live? Ezekiel's like, no. Like, what, trick question here. What are you asking? You know, and, and, and he tells him to prophesy. And, and over time, there's like this beautiful scene of them coming to life. And uh, Derek was telling me of a seminary professor that, that would uh, take his class to a cemetery, right? He'd take his class of young uh, ministers, and take him to the cemetery and say, hey, Can any of you uh, undo this? Don't you go ahead and tell them to stop being dead. Go ahead, tell them to come back to life. Right, and that's laughable, right? Like nobody's, well, nobody that you're going to trust is going to try that, right? Going to pretend that they can make that happen. And so it is with our salvation. When we are saved, it is not just this meh. Okay, prayed this prayer, now I go to church and I'll get to I go to heaven when I die. Like, no, no, no. It is this revolutionary, transforming thing that is not so much about our body and the physicality, it's about the, the nature that is within us. The The language there is really not translated well to be talking about perishable and imperishable or natural and unnatural. Really, the, the bigger idea, the, the actual. Um, language there in the Greek is more about it's it's actually from the word psyche which you know we, we kind of have that translation of the mind like the it's more about the animating spirit that what drives us as a people the the inward part of that and and so that would be very much the language that you're talking about and what what he's saying is it's not about the physical and the not physical and the spiritual as much as it's about what is perishable and what so what cannot last into eternity and what can and what Paul is saying is when we're united with Christ in the resurrection of the dead, we are given new life. It is, the Bible is clear. We were dead and we are made alive in Christ. That is a picture of Ezekiel 37 coming to pass. When the spirit of Christ is breathed on us, it is not just this, well, got saved today. Like, no, it is a radical and transforming moment. That's why it's so absurd when someone just says, well, you know, I, I didn't want to go to hell. So I prayed a prayer and you know, I've got my ticket and you know, I just kind of go on about life as usual. Like, that doesn't make any sense. And one pastor says, like, you don't come in to a meeting where you're late and, and, you know, you claim you got hit by a truck and you look very presentable and all put together. No, you need, like, if you got hit by a truck. There's going to be some evidence of that in your life. The same is true if you've encountered Christ. The Bible says like you've passed through death and into new life what is old is gone and what is new has come and there is a transforming power that transforms cowardly scared disciples into bold proclaimers of the gospel truth that went to their death that same spirit the one who brought Jesus back from death romans 8:11 says lives in us it dwells in us Gives life to our mortal bodies, so it's not about. well, is our body going to look like this? Is it going to look like that? One author said, "It's sort of. We want to look at it. Well, is it? Is it a wooden? It's sort of like asking the question: Is it a wooden ship or an iron ship? Meaning, what material is it made out of? He said, "We're well, really asking the wrong question. Really, it, it, the better question that Paul is unpacking for us here is: It is. It a, is it a steamship or is it a sailboat? Does that make sense? So it's not about is it wooden or is it iron? Is it steam powered or is it sail, like powered by the wind? It's more about what drives us. Our old nature is gone. Our new nature is present. And that is what's transforming us and leading us into this life of Christ. And yes, it's a struggle, but it is one that we can count on. He will help us finish and fully consummate one day. And that is, that is the hope that we have in the resurrection. And so it's not about like we're not going to be like this whole different, like our bodies will just be, will be transformed in this way that's really hard to explain. But us, our being, that's already been made new. And that will last into eternity. That, like, he's going to say later, flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom of God. It's not about our bodies. It's not about, it's, it's about our being. It's about what powers us. It's about our nature. And Jesus has made it So it is this, so the life of Christ launches the kingdom. The death of Christ conquers the enemy. And it is the resurrection which establishes and empowers his kingdom to go forward. It's the only way that we accomplish the work that he's left us to do. That song we sang earlier, that we are the church, we are the hope. Like, we're not just making, like, it's not us, the journey. Like, God made his church for his mission, right? To transform the world. Like, we don't do that in our own strength. We only do that when we become a, like, he takes people, a world that he is in the process of renewing and, and restoring, and he takes people that have been renewed and been restored and sends them out on mission. That's the way that his kingdom comes. That's the way that his kingdom grows. And we're going to continue to talk about the hows and the implications of that, and we'll look next week at the new earth and restoration and all that. But for now, here's my encouragement to you. Don't take lightly the resurrection. Like, the kingdom comes in power. The the moment that Jesus steps out of the grave on Easter morning, the kingdom is established in power forever. So don't take that for granted. Right? Right? Jesus is alive. Our salvation rests in him and not ourselves. And then lastly, you need to know that he he brought the kingdom to bear through the cross. And he invites us, he commands us to take up our own cross and follow him. So what this does is this gives us a paradigm. It gives us a category for our own suffering in the meantime. Because many people ask, well, if the kingdom's here, if the kingdom is present, why are we still suffering in the way that we are? Well, as you read on through the New Testament, as you read from Peter, you read from more of Paul, and you realize that's because we are sharing in the sufferings of Christ and his kingdom is, is having its bearing weight on the world and, and sin is being moved. Like, all of that is happening as we share in the sufferings of Christ. And, and he brings about new life through the death of our old life. And he's got, a, he's got all sorts of things in store for us. And that's what the second part is. The resurrection gives us hope for a future beyond our circumstances, beyond the suffering that we have before us today. And that is the good news that Jesus himself brings. That is, most, that is of most and first importance, as Paul said. So if you don't get anything else, know that Jesus came to seek and to save sinners. Not to be served, but to give his life as a ransom, to win back, to purchase back that which belongs to him, but the enemy had in his hand, to purchase back sinners. And he did that through the cross. And the cross had no hold on him. He displayed his power by bursting forth out of the grave. And if you trust in him as your Savior, confess that you're a sinner in need of a Savior, and you could say, Jesus, you are that one. I'll make you Lord of my life. And the Bible says you'll be saved. And he'll be with you, and he'll give you power. Like He'll walk with you through the rest of it. And So that's the, that's the great hope of the Christian faith. Would you pray with me? God, we're humbled in awe of the work that you've done and really failing to even partly understand what it means for your kingdom to come and be present here. But Lord, we want you. We want more of you. I pray that you would accomplish that here today, that that those who don't know you would be called to trust in you for the first time and they would be born again, new life. For the rest of us, Lord, may we lean in, may we surrender more and more of our lives to the kingdom of the King who gave his life for us. Make this true. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.